Welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we speak with industry leaders in the data space and we extract and share their secrets, their tips, their approaches to success. We want to expose what makes them tick and how they got to where they are. This is so you can benefit from all of their years of hard work and you can fast track your career, whether you're coming from a data background or working on the business side of an organization and want to move in. I hope and I think that you'll find these discussions very valuable. If you are, please let me know, social media, and please share it with others so we can continue to help more people on their professional journey. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for being here today. And today we have a treat of an episode for you. We're speaking with Dr. Beverly Wright. She's based in Atlanta in the US and she is so impressive. <laughs> she does it all. Beverly does executive education or teaches executives about data science. She has a fantastic podcast that I highly recommend, which she tells us about. She started not-for-profit for data scientists to donate their time and expertise for good causes. And she's also the partner for data science at Relational AI, where she started earlier this year. I cannot recommend highly enough the conversation with Beverly. It was so enjoyable. Her perspectives, I found them so valuable, so helpful. I think that you'll really enjoy it. I hope you do. And let me know. This will be the last episode for the year, last episode for season two of Data Futurology. As same as last year, we'll be taking a few weeks off during the holiday period, spend some time with family, and then we'll come back towards the end of January. I hope that you also have a fantastic holiday period. I hope that you get to spend some time with your loved ones, take stock on the year that was. Think about the highs, the lows, what were your favorite moments of the year and what were your key lessons that you want to take forward to the next year and then think about how you want that year to be. Take a breather, recharge the batteries, look after yourself and one another. I hope that this has been a fantastic and amazing and wonderful year for you. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. This will be the end of season two. Come back in January for season three of Data Futurology. Thank you so much. And here is the conversation with Beverly. Hi, this is Felipe. Today I'm speaking with Beverly. Beverly, thank you so much for making the time. I'm so excited to be speaking with you. How are you doing today? Great. And absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. To kick off the interview, could you take us back to the beginning and tell us about how you got started in the data space? What was it that pulled you in? Yeah, we're going to go way back in time because I've been in this field since 1991. So I have had a very deliberate data science analytics journey. I know some people say like, oh, I fell into this. Mm. I did not fall into this. This was not a falling. This was a deliberate step-by-step -step kind of thing. So I love it. my <laughs> initial movement into analytics and data science was in 1989, which is the same year that I also started coding in SAS, by the way. And that was when I took a decision sciences course at Georgia State University, Go Panthers. We were one of the only schools in the nation that had decision sciences because nobody understood it back then. So I took this course and I was an accounting major. Please don't tell anybody that. Um, <laughs> and hated it because I, I knew I liked numbers, but I didn't understand what about numbers. And so I took decision sciences and I absolutely loved it and haven't looked back since. So I ended up with an undergraduate in decision sciences, a master of science in analytical methods, and a PhD in marketing science. So that's my educational and that's how I got into it. Amazing. And I saw that at least for your PhD, you went back after you had some experience. Do you recommend that as a good path? So Philippe, there's this thing called life. <laughs> and I think people have to learn how to balance life with their career and everything else that's going on. So in my professional journey, you'll see that I've moved in uh, three different big domains. One is consulting. So I've been a consultant for about 10 cumulative years, maybe 11 now, at different companies like Nielsen. And now I'm at a company called Relational AI. 
The second big domain, I was in academia for about 16 years, teaching undergraduate, master's, and doctoral students in analytics and data science, um, most recently at Georgia Tech, where I taught an analytics practicum to multidisciplinary students. And then the third leg of the Beverly Wright three-legged experience stool <laughs> is uh, on the client side, working directly as a practitioner. And so I'm either an individual contributor working within analytics group, or I was leading teams. So those are sort of the three in the, the weaving. You know, the reason it wasn't like a block and a block and a block is um, twofold. Number one, life. Different types of life events sort of led me all over. But secondly, I'm not picky about my domain. I just want to do data science. And so if that's done through academia, if that's done through consulting, if that's done through working for a company directly, I don't really care. I like to do data science and oversee those kind of projects. So that's part of the reason I don't necessarily recommend it, but I don't necessarily recommend against it. Yeah, very good. Yeah, I wanted to ask you because I have been thinking about going back and doing a PhD at one point. So it's great to hear and I completely relate to the fact that sometimes life takes you in different directions. Well, there's so, pros and cons to the experience too. If you have experience, I had a colleague, great guy, he had zero experience and he was in our doctoral program. And so whenever he would teach, he would talk about like his experience at Subway because that was his only job. Like in high school, he worked at Subway. And so he couldn't, yeah. like, he just couldn't. <laughs> It was difficult for the concepts to really make sense. So I had the advantage of being able to talk about the work that I had already done, but it's also meant that I was later in life. And so I graduated later. And so it's, it, there's pros and cons to all these things. Agreed. No, but it's really good. Can you give us an overview of your career to date? Yes. And tell us a bit more about the weaving. Sounds really yes. interesting. And I love what I do. I wear four hats right now, four main hats, including everything else I do, but I serve yes. on a lot of boards. And I won't even count that hat. The board servitude hat is not even being counted. But one hat I wear is I'm a co-founder for a nonprofit that does data science for good called Atlytics. And Atlytics is a community of data scientists Amazing. Yay! <laughs> that uh, are trying to make a difference. So in the same way that you use data science to help great companies earn more revenue or reduce their operating expenses, you can also use data science to help determine mental health issues and to figure out mm. opioid addiction and to help with mental suicide risks or different kinds of things like that homelessness. And we've worked on all those kinds of projects. So that's one of the hats that I wear, and that takes up a lot of my nights and weekends. Another hat that I wear is I have my own podcast called Tag Data Talk. And that's interviews people that talk about what's going on in the state of data science. And so that's really fun. A third hat that I wear is I'm still involved in the academic community. Aside from board servitude, I also teach executive education and specifically at University of Georgia and mm -hmm. at Emory. And I'm a former exec ed instructor at Georgia Tech, but right now it's Emory and UGA. So that's my third hat. And then my fourth hat that actually enables all this. <laughs> the day my, job. The day job. Yay. That's my consulting gig. And that's called Relational AI. We're headquartered out of San Francisco. And um, we offer services around, guess what? Data science. So they're all sort of connected. Again, more with the weaving to each other. If they weren't connected, I probably wouldn't be able to do them all. But they all have a lot of fabric that's common. I love your style. I love the way you do it. Could you tell us about when did you start each of your fairly big projects. Each one is fairly big. When did you start each one and how has the journey been? Well, the Atlytics, a nonprofit I started about a year and a half ago, TAG, I've been a board member for a couple of years and we just started the podcast TAG Data Talk about less than a year ago. And I think we already have a dozen interviews under our belt. Executive education I've been doing for a minute. That probably six five or six years by now. And consulting, I've been in and out since around 2005. So it's all been culminating <laughs> to this. That's right. And moving into the not-for-profit sector, what has surprised you the most about the work you've been doing there? Oh, gosh, it's devastating. So I guess what surprises me the most is how the data scientists, how seriously they take the work. They 100% volunteers working on these projects and they really get into them. So if they're going to do a project on opioid addiction, they're going to learn about opioid addiction, right? In the same way that if you're doing a project for Coca-Cola, you're going to learn more about the mm. Coca-Cola brand and the products they sell and that sort of thing. And know to never bring other competitor products into the Coca-Cola headquarter building. I almost did that one time and got in big trouble. So in the same way that you learn about the context of what you're working on for for-profit projects, you kind of need to learn a little bit about 
human trafficking and about opioid addiction, and it's devastating. So that's been um, one of the biggest surprises is that how much the data scientists have really gotten into the work. Amazing. And how was the process of starting the not-for-profit? Yeah. I'm sure that you were thinking about it, or maybe you were thinking about it for some time, and then there was sort of like a final was, push. How was. was that? Yeah, great guess. So there were two other co-founders, Andrea Popescu, who is right now she's at Delta, and Khalife Aljada, and right now he is at the Home Depot. And at the time, we were, we were all three at different companies. <laughs> but now we're at different companies. We all three changed within a year. Andrea read a research article and it was about this data for good, data science for good, more specifically in California and this movement. She's like, gosh, why can't we do this? At the same time, Khalife was running a conference called Southern Data Science Conference. And he said, you know, it'd be great if we had a hackathon at this conference. Mm -hmm. And the third thing that was happening is that I had former students. And I want to talk about this with our topic, too. I had former students yeah. that were coming back to me and they were saying, Dr. Wright, I've been working at this company and all that cool stuff you taught me, not, they're not doing any of it. Like they're not doing anything like what you taught me. They're doing all this basic stuff. I want to do more like serious data science, cool stuff. And I said, okay, well, go talk to your local and favorite nonprofit and ask them for data and say, I want to help you. Let me answer some questions for you with your data. And you can do whatever you want because you're doing it for free, like pro bono mm -hmm. professional services. So I did that so many times that I was thinking like, there's got to be a more systematic way to do this. At the same time, Andrea with her research article, and then at the same time, Khalife wanting a hackathon, we pulled together and we said, um, that's my thing, right? Felipe is collaboration. We pulled together and we said, why don't we do a hackathon just to see if there's interest in the Atlanta community for data science for good. And we did that and we found that there was. And so we stuck a stake in the ground and we called ourselves Athletics. Amazing. And how has it been recruiting people on both sides? So the not-for-profits and the, the data scientists to help? Yeah, the nonprofits are challenging sometimes because mm. They don't quite have a data-inspired culture yet. I'm just speaking generally. There are some that really, yeah. really get it. And then there are others that are like, I don't understand what you're even offering. So it kind of depends, but it can be a little challenging, especially because that's not our world, right? Our world is very quant and it's very yeah. data. And so mm -hmm. it's hard for us to sort of get ourselves in their shoes sometimes. And I think it's hard for them to get in our shoes. So sometimes it can be a little challenging. Now, the other side has been really easy <laughs> okay. bringing in data scientists. We have almost a thousand volunteers right now that are part of us and we're only a year old and we have regular meetings and we have to like limit registration. We're begging for space all the time from our academic partners to see if like, can we use this big classroom? Because we have 150 people coming tomorrow. And so we regularly have around 150 community members that are just like, oh, pick me, pick me. I want to work on the next project. And so they're aching to work on these applied projects, get the experience, walk through the process. And, you know, some mentorship comes with it. They yes. absolutely love it. So that part's been good. The biggest challenge has actually been around the committees. In order to run an organization, you have to have like marketing, you have to have administration, you have to have legal counsel. Thank God we have a pro bono attorney. It's got to have a system and people don't want to serve on the committees as much as they want to just do the projects. Mm. So that's been a little bit of a challenge, but with thousand volunteers, we've got to be able to get some more of those. That's amazing. Thank you so much for doing that work. That is really inspirational, really incredible. Tell me about how you got started with the podcast. Yeah. So <laughs> that's actually a funny story. When I was at Georgia Tech, I was trying to get more visibility. And my dean said, hey, people, some people don't even know Scheller College of Business. Like they need, we need to promote the College of Business as a whole. Mm -hmm. And we need to get ourselves out there. And this was a new center that we were just starting called the Business Analytics Center. So I was thinking like, how do students, like how do they, like yeah. what do they consume? Who are these creatures, right? <laughs> I'm an old lady and they're young and so they're different. But <laughs> I started talking to students and I said, well, what, what would you want? And they said, you know what we really want? Like, well, they are not going to hesitate to tell me. They said, we really <laughs> want some kind of continuation. Like once we graduate, we feel like we're falling off of some kind of cliff and that's it. Like mm. there's no more stimulation and stuff. Like it's difficult. But I would listen to a podcast, they said. And I said, oh, would you? And so what would you call <laughs> that podcast? And they said, I would call it the Analytics Buzz at Georgia Tech. So that's what I did. I started a podcast called the Analytics Buzz. I went to my dean. Everybody thought I was crazy. I'm a professor and I'm talking about starting a podcast. So, <laughs> so I went to, I'm not your typical prof. I went to a meetup 
that does podcasting. And I was like, how do you do a podcast? Because I'm a professor. I don't know anything. I learned how to do a podcast. And then at the end of the meeting, they said, or you could go to this company and we'll turnkey for you. And I'm like, you should have led with that. Where do I sign? Like, how do I get the turnkey service? And so I met the people that just do it for you. And I started with a really great colleague named David Schmidt. David is a Georgia Tech grad. Great, great guy. Tons of experience. Super friendly. And I was like, David. I'm doing this new thing. And he believed in me. And he's like, sure, heck yeah. So he did the interview. The first one was successful. Then they just started coming in. You know what I mean? And that's how I started the analytics buzz. Now, once I left Georgia Tech, TAG, where I was serving as a board member, they said, do we want to absorb that somehow? Do we want to co-brand? Are they going to continue it? And to my knowledge, they weren't going to continue it. Mm -hmm. So they said, why don't we start our own? I said, okay, let's call it TAG Data Talk. And they were like, yes. So that's how it was born. That's amazing. And how's our tag data talk been? Oh, it's great. We got a sponsor immediately. It was another board member who said, I'll sponsor it. Yeah. And so he sponsored it immediately. So it's sponsored through Emory Continuing Education. So we have the clout of Emory Continuing Education and TAG, Data Science Analytics Society. And between those two, when you go to someone and say like, hey, you want to be interviewed? They're like, sure. And they don't realize how bad of an interviewer I am. So they No, not at all. (laughs) But yeah, it's lots of fun. It's lots of fun. We try to cover things around tools, techniques, trends, and talent. four T's around data science and analytics. Amazing. And it's been going over a year now. Is that right? And has the experience been of having, well, getting the opportunity to do these interviews and constantly sit down to talk with these people? It's interesting, especially because you could ask four data scientists the same question and get 10 different answers. (laughs) (laughs) They might change their mind mid-sentence. But yeah, it's, it's interesting that some things are so diverse and then other topics are really, really the same, like depending on who you talk to. Like right now, and I know this is probably one of your questions coming up, a lot of people, including myself, are really taking a look at ethics, especially as it relates to artificial intelligence and machine learning that we're really kind of thinking more about what are we doing and how are we doing this and why are we doing this? And much like throwing something in the trash, like what's going to happen after. So once we develop a solution and have a model and then we start operationalizing it, what's that after effect? And so I think we're starting to really think about the ethical side. There's some patterns that I'm hearing through the podcast interviews around topics that tend to stick and that Mm. tend to be like very consistent depending on who I interview and then other topics that are just all over the place with different opinions. Very, very, very nice. Really so interesting. I love it as well. And I've really enjoyed your podcast. So definitely please keep going. It's been great. How about the executive education? How has that been for you? Yeah, exec ed is, I mean, I say it's one of the funnest things I've done, but there's so many fun things that I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely one of the funnest things I've done. I like... Really? Uh, wow. Yeah. I really like teaching practice practitioners and more specifically executives. I like Mm. for them to have those aha moments when they realize the value of data science. I think that a lot of executives from what I've seen, they tend to know the buzzwords and they think like, we need to do some AI. They come back from a conference and say, let's get some machine learning up in here. (laughs) (laughs) For what purpose? Like, how do you... And it's like kind of a crawl, walk, run. You don't just sprint as soon as you stand up. But I like being able to make an impact and be able to show them, here's kind of how it works. And this is, you know, the journey. It's not like just a one-time thing. It's a journey and you got to look at this sort of long-term. But I especially love seeing the aha moments when they realize the value that data science, I think, is a superpower in Mm. some ways. And when they see that and they understand that, then that's very rewarding. Very, very nice. And how do you describe the journey for them? And the reason why I ask is because at least online, you know, there's always people that are scientists that are so frustrated with the the leadership in their companies that they're sometimes the people that stick to the buzzwords, but don't seek to get this type of education and therefore have a very short-sighted view. How do you take the executives on the journey? Yeah, that's a great question. So you have to take my class to find out fully. Definitely, yes. (laughs) But I'll give you a small, quick version. So a lot of times data scientists will focus on just the impact projects. And these are projects that you take some data, you answer a business question, you get an answer, the end, right? Or is it? But I tend to try to focus more on three pillars, not just the impact, but also the strategy and the enablement. And the strategy is kind of the overarching big picture. This is where do you want to go? 
And why do you want to go there? And how does this make sense for you as a company? So you got to pay attention to that, not just like staying on the treadmill and running through project by project. The second pillar, aside from the impact, which I guess we'll call the third, the second one though is what I call enablement. And um, the enablement pillar is something that I created based on clients. And what I found is that we can develop all kinds of insights and solutions, but unless we somehow enable those insights and solutions, it's never going to really have an impact. That's why so many data science projects just end up in POC land. So enablement can be a technology enablement where you make sure that the solution is showing up at the point of decision making, or it can be a cultural enablement, which is much more difficult than technology enablement. (laughs) And that cultural enablement may involve a softening of your environment, like a focus toward data inspired decision making, as opposed to the golden gut that is so traditional among so many different companies, especially older ones. So I think it's talking through that as part of the journey, which is don't just look at it as a project, but see it as more of a long-term investment and a part of a larger ecosystem and a larger, almost like a piece of the fabric that we weave to get to a bigger picture of what's happening in your company. That's the way I try to illustrate it to them. I'm sure it's much more eloquent in class, though. It probably sounds better when I say in class. (laughs) Are you kidding me? That was excellent. (laughs) That was brilliant. (laughs) Thank you. You're so kind. No, no, it's true. And how do they take the discussion around the golden gut? Because for so many executives... That's what's helped them. That's okay. what has built Thank their you career. For that. Thank you for saying that. Because that's exactly what I say is that we have been taught to reward people on intuition in the past, to reward senior leaders when they make a great decision in the absence of data. So mm. you would think that they would be a little bit resistant. But I think what happens is they're sort of relieved. They don't have to make golden gut decisions anymore. And I don't think they realize that more data is available than they might, like not just data, yeah. but actual information than maybe they had originally thought. So I think in some ways they're relieved. What I found too, Felipe, is that instead of being like kind of defensive, like, oh, we don't do that. We're perfect. Blah, blah, blah. It's actually the opposite. I jokingly, I shouldn't say this, but I jokingly call it like analytics anonymous. Like everybody in these executive programs, they're just, they're all sharing and they're all just like, oh, my company and we should do this better. And and they all benefit. It's almost like a consortium of companies that kind of, I'm into making connections. So it's almost like a consortium (laughs) of getting their frustrations laid out on the table and say like, okay, well, this is what I got. How do I work with it? So that's been really, really rewarding is to help them move the needle a little bit forward on advancing their culture. But what I've one more note comment on that too yeah. is, um, is that what I have found is that old successful companies tend to have a really hard time, and it's mm. because they've been around a hundred and something years. They's I mean, there's a couple in Atlanta, I won't name them, but they've been around over a hundred years. They've been incredibly successful because of their brand, and they haven't had many competitors that come close, mm-hmm. and without any sort of market threats like that, or without it's been golden, <laughs> right? right? So they maybe are a little bit slower to make those kind of mods than if you're dealing with a company that was born on data or built with data or completely (laughs) reliant on data, then it's going to be different. And what are the suggestions that most hit home with the executives of those companies when they're wanting to change, but obviously they're facing a very fixed culture or a big obstacle in terms of changing the culture? What type of advice or, or conversation most resonates with people in that position? Yeah, that's a tough one. If you figure that out, you call me back. No, (laughs) No, I'm kidding. I think um, having them actually spend time with the data science teams and not the chief analytics officer, I'm talking like Mm. the little guy, (laughs) the recent grad, having them actually spend time. Um, In fact, one school in the Atlanta area um, started what's called a reverse mentorship. And this is where, especially because technology, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's almost like I took that model of what they were doing with reverse mentorships. I sort of apply that through executive education to encourage leaders to get into the shoes of the people that are actually doing the work. But I think for them, it's about really just seeing the value. If they can start to see the value, even not in their company, but just globally or, Mm. or even just big picture macro view, companies that tend to rely on data science outperform other companies. Like if they can see something like that and then it starts to hit home with their own individual work, then that's what really moves them. 
That's fantastic. In the last company that I worked for, once uh, the we built a data science team, and once we started delivering value for clients, clients were telling uh, the CEO about the work that we've been doing. So he started to get more involved, and then he started coming to standups about yeah. once, a, once a month or maybe once every six weeks. And he would literally just stand around and be looking at us, and he's like, "What are my black turtlenecks doing today?" I was like, <laughs> I was "My like, black turtlenecks. That's great. Don't do that. Don't yeah. that. <laughs> right? It might be what we are, but you know." Yeah, not to our Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and have you found that with some executives, maybe through the education, maybe through the consulting, have you found that with some of them, they swing too far the other way on the pendulum, that they maybe want to outsource all decision-making to data scientists or to the data and almost want to take a back seat? Have, you, think, have you come across that? Sorry. Not as much, not as much. I think mm-hmm. um, definitely senior leadership team have given a seat at the table to the data science group. So I think that that has definitely happened. I do think that sometimes they have to remember that it's not magic. The challenge with that is it just takes time. If you don't understand, I truly understand data science or analytics, then they don't know what the limitations are. Okay, let me give you a real example. I had a client, they wanted to really understand customer experience. And they said, okay, so here's what's going on. And this is our retail outlets. And we just really need to understand, like, that's our number one goal at this company. We've got to improve customer experience, et cetera, which is great. And I love this area. This is one of my favorite areas for analytics, which is why I got my PhD in marketing science, because I love the whole customer experience field. I said, okay, great. The only thing is, all the data you gave us, there's nothing about customer experience. They're like, oh, you need data? Like, around customer <laughs> like this, it just doesn't, you know, all the pieces don't make sense. They don't understand prereqs. They don't understand. They may not understand either what, that there are limitations. If the data's not there or if it's an impossible thing to actually derive and just trying to say like cause and effect 100%, mm-hmm. like you have to design an experiment for that kind of stuff, it's going to take a minute. So yes, I do find, to answer your question, Felipe, that sometimes when they turn, man, they turn. They're like, all right, let's get everything done. And I'm going to count on you for everything. And I know <laughs> you can answer all questions and I know it's going to be 100% accurate. So yeah, sometimes uh, I will see that. Very, very nice. And tell us about your um, consulting work that you've been doing, working at Relational AI as a partner. How did that come about and how's it been? Yes. So I kind of went to the dark side of consulting. (laughs) I started on that journey in 2005 and I worked for this really cool guy, a small company in North Carolina. And um, I really enjoyed just the applied side of it. I'd already been on the applied side, but I hadn't really been on the consulting side as much. I like the applied side because at the time I was actually teaching full-time too. But I also like the variety. So that was what hooked me because Mm. when I worked at different companies, it was like natural gas, natural gas, natural gas every day. (laughs) And then telecom, 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 and then banking, banking, banking. It was like the same, you know, it's like if you work for a soda company, then it's like sugar water every day all the time. And consulting, it's almost like a meta-analysis if you're familiar with that, but you see what's going on at company A, see what's going on at company B, see what's going on at company C. And Felipe, eventually you sort of weave these pieces together and you start going, gosh, look at the patterns of what's happening, you know, industry wide. Like this is interesting. So I think that's what really hooked me is that you zoom out of each. Yes, there's a ton of cool stuff going on here, but it's almost like you could lift and shift what's happening at this company and move it to this company. It's like they're doing the same. They have the same issues. So I think that's what drew me into consulting initially. Mm-hmm. And Relational AI, um, we're actually building a product. It's not ready to be sold yet. So we're 100% services right now. We focus on our service side, which is the strategy enablement and the impact, those three different pillars. And that's been very rewarding to see. Again, for me, I guess I take it personally. It's very rewarding to see our clients learn things. I got into data science because I liked the discoveries. I liked being able to take a data set. And I know that's not even going to be a thing in the future. Kids in 20 years from now are going to be like, what's a data set? Like all yeah. data is individual. <laughs> but um, I like to be able to take a data set and find some sort of treasure. To me, it's a treasure hunt. Like what kind of trends are there? What kind of questions are we answering? Like how do we find these discoveries? If I can bring someone like, to those discoveries, you know, it's like walking with someone and finding an Easter egg and being like, look over here, maybe you'll see an Easter egg. And they see that and they pick it up and they're like, 
oh my gosh, I can so use this. That's what I like. And so that's how I got into um, consulting. And that's the kind of work that we do, relational. That's amazing. And what type of industries have you been working with in your time there? And is there any examples or case studies that you can share? Well, I just started <laughs> about four or five yeah. months ago. So not a whole lot so far that I can share. But I will tell you that some of the projects, like, for example, on the digital side, being able to improve recommendation engines. So mm -hmm. if a customer buys this, then what do we recommend? Because people are relying more and more on e-commerce and they're relying more and more on the recommendations. I can't remember where I read it, but some consumers are using the recommendations almost exclusively for their yeah. shopping. And so that's become more important for companies to really be able to get a personalized, not a group of customers, like down to Jane. They want to know mm. what does this person, what are their needs? What are their wants? What are their preferences? And how do I talk to them? And so that's an example of a project that we're working on right now is to really improve the recommendation engine for the client. Great. With consulting or between the work being done in-house and consulting, there's always a bit of tension, sometimes unspoken tension about what work should be done internally, what work should be done externally. How do you see that duality? Is it a duality? How do you see it? Well, for our group, everything we do on the services side is done for an external entity like our clients. That's not a conversation for us right like today, especially because mm. we're only a year and a half old as a company. For the product side, then there's a ton of stuff that's going on on that side to help build this product and innovate and improve it and make sure it's ready for prime time. So all those efforts are kind of focused on the product side. Great. And how about from the perspective of your clients in terms of what they should do in-house versus what they should ah, get consultants yes. to do and yes, how to yes. make those decisions? So for clients, they have to try to ascertain like what are they going to do internally versus what are they going to spin out to a company like Relational AI. What I find is that typically it's a matter of number one, if they, if they can't, like they don't have the skill set, they don't have the ability to build the skill set. Our team, our data science team is almost 100% PhDs. I think we have around like over half of our company is a PhD, even if they're not wow. on the data science team. And then those that aren't PhDs have some other kind of terminal degree. I think we have a JD. And anyway, we're just a very educated group. That's number one is if they can't, they don't know how. The second reason why people come to us instead of trying to do things internally is that they want an outside perspective. You know, so some of these examples that I've been talking about with going to this company and then going to that company and then going to this company, they don't get that. They don't have the ability to do that necessarily. Maybe they have one or two jobs in their past lives or whatever, but we're doing this daily. We're talking to different companies about what their problems are and we can stitch those together and figure out what the best solution is for our clients. So having that external perspective is golden for a lot of clients. So that's another reason why they come to us. And then thirdly, more practically, some people come to us because I talked to a client today, actually a prospect that I'm pretty sure is going to be a client. Um, but nice. I talked to them today and they said, we have so much work to do. We just need more. We just need more resources. <laughs> and so that's the third reason is sometimes people, it's not necessarily that it's too complex for their team or that they're looking for an outside perspective. They just need bodies. Like they just need some really smart people to come in and help them and get the work done. That's great. I wanted to ask you about the trifecta that you mentioned around strategy enablement and impact. First, on the on the strategy side, when you go and do a client, a piece of work with a client, how and if it was based around the data science strategy, how do you tackle that? And what are your views on what makes a good strategy? Ah, great. Great question. So the strategy pillar that we do, a lot of times that includes things like assessments or developing a vision statement or creating a roadmap or things like that that are, it's not necessarily a single project or mm. answering a business question, individual business question, but it's more like a plan, <laughs> just building a plan. And I'm surprised at how many companies still don't really have a big picture plan for their data science function. I actually had a client not too long ago, and believe me, this is another one of those I think they're over 100 years old. They've been very successful. They have incredible product, great company. And they said, we have no data science function. That does not exist. We have data scientists here and there, but we have no data science function. So it's a little surprising sometimes, but data science strategy, I'm going to tell you my little formula is CASI, C-A-S-I, CASI. So a data science strategy should be collaborative. It should not just be created in a silo. It's got to take your business partner. IT. It has to take all these different constituents into account. So it definitely should be collaborative. 
Secondly, aligned. And by the way, these are not in any particular order. It just spells Cassie. So I thought it was cute. (laughs) Very nice. (laughs) And so it's got to be aligned to your overall strategy, right? Mm -hmm. So if you try to create a data science strategy that's not aligned with where you're going as a as a big picture, as a company, it's probably going to not make it very long, you know? So you you certainly want your data science strategy to be in alignment with where you're going as a company. Number three, it should involve some sharing. So as you're building, you should have some transparency behind what's been built and have like a central repository and a sharing Mm -hmm. of this kind of information and insights. And then number four, and this is actually my favorite of the CASI, it should involve some kind of innovation. As a matter of fact, Felipe, what I have found is that if you think about the analytics maturity curve and Mm -hmm. you look at how far along a company is, there's all kinds of ways you can assess that and we can do that for them too. But there's one question, if they answer this one question, I can usually kind of tell where they are on the maturity curve. And it's, what are you doing right now for your data science innovation? And they say nothing, then they're pretty low on the curve. So a data science strategy should definitely take how are you going to improve? How are you going to innovate? What sort of research? Like what kind of adjustments, modifications, improvements? Like how are you going to advance your data science engine, right? Mm -hmm. Not just your once and dones, but your data science engines. How are you going to advance those in innovative ways to keep things moving forward? And that innovation should certainly be a part of your data science strategy. Definitely. And so I wanted to ask you about the other two pillars in the trifecta. Can you tell us a little bit more about the enablement for for data scientists? Yes. I love the enablement pillar, especially because it was created by our clients. The enablement includes both technology enablement, where your solution is integrated into the point of decision making, as well as the cultural enablement. And the technology enablement is fairly straightforward. So I'll focus on the cultural enablement a little bit. What I found is that, actually, I'm going to use a quote. I was at a client's the other day. (laughs) I'm always visiting with clients and prospects and I'm at their location and, and they said to me something I thought was kind of profound. They said, what we have found in this company is that relationships speak louder than numbers. I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, you know, data scientists are usually kind of quant and they're sort of factual and they think like, oh, well, it's a number, like obviously. But if they have a strong relationship with someone, then they will say like, I think that number's wrong. They would just throw out numbers. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And it highlighted the need for a cultural enablement kind of work. So one example of that is what we call an analytics or a data science summit. And I'm finding that plenty of companies are doing something like this right now. I started an analytics summit at one of my former companies a while back ago. Mm -hmm. And it was born because I was talking to people from one of the divisions. I was going to lunch and we're talking about the work they're doing. I'm like, oh, that's really cool. Then I would go to lunch with someone else and they're doing the same thing, except with different data because we're all in the same company, but different divisions. And I said, oh, you should meet so-and-so, right? I'm a connector. And so I'm always like, you should talk to so-and-so. And this happened so much. And I thought, gosh, none of us are talking to each other. Like we're all in our own world. And even within our own division, there were different pockets. And I've been in my market for a long time. And so I'm, I'm sort of like, I know these people and I'm trying to connect them. So the thought came to me, let's get everybody together in one room at the same time and let us learn some stuff. Because mm. it's not necessarily about the learning, Felipe. It's more about the ability to be together and learn in a sort of collaborative and sharing kind of environment. And it highlights the importance because if our senior leaders buy into this idea and we were to put on a analytics summit, then it just showcases what is data science and our senior leaders will kind of get it more. So that's what we did. To my shock, I was just a peon. I I was like a senior manager or something. I wasn't even a director. And I went to my boss and he's like, oh, sure, go ahead. I don't think he took me seriously. (laughs) And we had to go to our tool vendor just to find out who the people are that are data scientists or analytics Mm. professionals. Within your company is where you were. Yeah, within our own company, we had to go to the vendor and say, who else, who has a license? And that's how we found, because we didn't know how else to find them, but that's what we did. And so we invited like 120 and around 400 showed up. Yay! (laughs) Because they brought their internal clients, they brought their bosses, they brought the IT groups they want. Because IT is over here trying to figure out what's happening downstream. Sometimes they don't know, right? And so we had a great turnout. We had great presentations. And 
probably most importantly, everybody was sort of talking and learning. We established like a set of what we called analytics champions that were part of this effort, encouraging their teams and introducing the speakers. And it was just a certainly highlighted the importance and the value of conducting any sort of data science within this organization and took it to an enterprise level. That's phenomenal. What was the structure of the summit? Who was presenting? What were the topics covered? Can you give us a little bit more? Yeah. So I'll talk about it in general because I've, I've done more yeah, than one. Course. I've done a lot of summits, but sometimes we'll have like tracks. Like one year I had BI reporting track and then I mm. had more advanced data science track. And then I think one year I had unstructured and then structured kind of tracks. And then some years we just have a, a single track where we walk um, sort of cradle to grave. The tracks indicate the cradle to grave process. So it's like cleaning data and framing a business problem. And, and it sort of moves through that process throughout the conference. And and then other times there are certain challenges that particular companies are going through at that moment. So if a company is really struggling with the war on talent and trying to find the right data scientists, or if they're really struggling with like, what are tools and how do you pick them or getting the most out of your data science, like really moving it past POC and moving into operationalization, then I'll focus some of the attention on some of those. But yeah, the summits are big fun. That is so great. I think it's a fantastic initiative. And I hadn't heard about somebody doing a summit like that internally. The only thing that I've seen recently is people starting to do training, data analytics training for business people in general. And I know a couple of companies here in Australia have just started doing some for product owners and from scrum masters and people like that. But I love the idea of doing an internal data analytics summit. I think it is a fantastic idea. Yeah. Well, apparently um, a lot of people think that because now it's becoming very popular. We do training too. We actually have our own institute at Relational AI. We call it the REI Institute. And um, we also have a partnership through UGA because I mentioned the executive education there. But yeah, the summits are really something. It's just the energy that's in the room. And just you, if you think about what did your boss call them? The black collars. Think about having all the black collars together. Like that's a cool moment. <laughs> that's a beautiful thing. It is. That's really good. Yeah, no, I must say, I think I'll learn from that one. No, I might steal that idea. I think uh, it'd be really good to do one at work. Thank you really very much for sharing that. Can you tell us about the third pillar? So that the impact side, if you have the strategy, the enablement going into the impact. So the impact pillar is about work where you take a set of data or some sort of elements and you answer a specific business question. If it's for a nonprofit, then it'd be a community question. So I'll talk about basically two different types. Well, okay, three. I'm going to limit it to three because this is, I get really excited with the impact stuff because this is where you can really see sort of the fruits of the data science labor is um, through the impact projects. The other two are, are needed, but they're almost like support functions. I think of it as impact is you need a place to sleep. Impact is a mattress, but you still need the bed frame and whatever else goes on a bed. (laughs) So it's almost like strategy enablement are part of it, but impact is the mattress. Some of my favorite impact projects, I'll tell you three. One, I love things that are related to consumers, understanding consumers. I was talking to a colleague from an organization called Catalina, and they're real big on personalization, like not groups of people, but you. Just getting down to the granularity of that specific individual and understanding them, I think is intriguing. And the chief analytics officer told me there really are no two people that are exactly alike. And this is intriguing to hear a retailer or marketer say something like that. So anything that involves helping with improving loyalty or improving a positive experience, like some people think that like marketing are the bad guys, right? So when I got my PhD in marketing science, people were like, oh, marketing, you know, like, ew, you gotta put sales on me and stuff. But I see it as helping companies like serve their customers better and helping them have a better experience and driving that loyalty. So those are definitely, and Felipe, over my career, I've been really, really lucky that I've either overseen or personally executed hundreds of projects because I got into it early and I required my students to do real projects with real data to solve real problems for real clients. And because of that, plus all the other places I've been and all the cool stuff I've done, I've done either overseen or personally executed hundreds of projects. So the category of consumer understanding, I think is probably one of my favorites. A second one that I've really enjoyed on the for-profit side is um, my team and I recently finished like multiple projects around safety for four different companies, safety projects. So these were questions like, what can we do to change the equipment that would 
provide a safer environment? Or are there things we can do that are training related that make a safer environment? Or how do we match up the employee with task to make for a safer environment? You know, or what is it about our assets? Like, are they hurting people? And how do we like, what do we do about it? So I think the safety projects, projects that we finished recently, those were really rewarding because, you know, I like making companies money and helping them reduce expenses. But this is like, you can save some lives, right? That's kind of cool. So I like doing things where it has that kind of impact. And so the safety ones were very rewarding impact projects. And then the third type of impact projects that I think are sneaking their way in my heart over the consumer even are the nonprofit ones. And you can't blame me for that, right, Felipe? I mean, come on. (laughs) Yeah, like I was waiting. Them. I was waiting to see what it was. I was yeah, like, oh, I mean, than the consumer. <laughs> it's better than the consumer. I love that stuff. It's why, it's why my PhD is in that area. But being able to use professional data science skills to inform nonprofits about how to reduce human trafficking or how to know the signs of the more vulnerable populations for opioid addiction or how to really understand the triggers of homelessness, like shelter, like shelter utilization rates. That's just really rewarding is to do do any kind of work that is improving the community. So those are probably my favorite impact kind of projects. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing all that. And I love that approach that you have to marketing around helping people be informed, make the right decision, be able to help them with something that's right for them. And I love that approach. I guess maybe flip side or maybe an enablement for that is the access to data in order yes. to be able to do that personalization down down to an individual level. I know that from my perspective, I would love to have a service where there's like a data vault or a data bank that I can give companies, maybe individuals, access to certain parts where I could control who sees what and then I can get recommendations based on that data, but obviously being able to turn it on and off in terms of the access. What are your views on how the data access has been playing recently and about where it's going in the space? Oh my gosh, it's continuing to be a challenge. It really does. So I'm thinking of three conversations I've had just in the last 10 days. And one company, we're about to do some training on them. And they said, or with them, on them, (laughs) training with them. And um, they said, I'm not good with those preposition, I guess. But they said, the biggest challenge that we're having right now is that the data is there and Mm. the teams don't necessarily know how to pull it and what to do. In other words, there's this gap because they feel like, first of all, they don't even know what data is there. And secondly, they're not quite sure how to access it. So those are continuing to be a challenge without a doubt. Another company I just talked to within the last 10 days said that they spend, I want to say he said more than half of their time justifying the data. So they're doing analytics and data science on it, but their business partners don't believe mm. them. So because the data has been such poor quality in the past, they're having to justify and prove the data is even right. So there are certainly, we continue to struggle through the challenges about data access and data cleanliness and data integrity and all these things related to data, certainly. But I do think we're getting better at it, Felipe. Mm. I mean, I think that the fact that we're recognizing that it's a problem and that we need to work on it and get better, I think is an improvement. We also have to remember that most data was not collected just for us to analyze. It was collected because we're measuring inventory. It was collected because we're required by some sort of regulator. It was, I mean, most data is not collected just for us to analyze. (laughs) (laughs) Collected for some other reason, and then we happen to want to analyze it. Mm. So we have to remember that too and kind of be a little patient. Very true. That's a really good one to keep in mind. I wanted to ask you about such collaboration. It's such a strong theme throughout your career. It's obviously a natural strength for you, and it sets you apart from so many data scientists, I think. So I wanted to ask you about how have you seen the benefits of collaboration throughout your career, and is it something that you would recommend for others to adopt? Collaboration in data science is not easy. It's something you really have to put some value on and understand the benefits before you even undertake it. So for example, the IT group 
and the technology and the data stewards are always going to have some sort of skin in the game and some kind of role to play with data science. The business constituents and the consumers of the data or the analytic is they're always going to have some sort of interest. And then there's the data science group. And, you know, not everybody's organized in this way, but functionally, those are kind of the top three, I guess, that really have to learn how to work together. What I've seen, I'm going to turn your question around as far as the benefits, and I'm going to give a little bit darker story. (laughs) And that absence of collaboration, what I tend to see is a whole lot of treadmill running. So these are data scientists that are sort of on the treadmill and they're running their projects only to find out that the data wasn't quite what they thought or that access was a problem or that processing, they weren't, the IT group wasn't ready for that level of processing or they didn't have the right tools. It's like completely uphill and it's just painful. On the other side, which I think it's actually, I don't know, they're both terrible, but on the business side, not collaborating and really understanding the business problem and framing it up front without doing that. What you see is that data science is happening for data science sake. And data science should not happen just for data science sake. Data science should happen for impact, right? It needs to have some kind of results and do something and help in some kind of way. So I'm not giving a very positive story here because I'm talking about the absence of collaboration and all the negative things that can happen. And then if we're just a little more deliberate, and I think some of that is start early, like early in the journey, start pulling in the right groups. Don't wait. There should never be like a ta-da, here's the answer. There should be yeah. like, it should be throughout the journey. Like you start at the beginning, you're, you're pulling along your data people, your technology people, your business people from day one and then bring them through, not just here's the end or here's a problem or here's the stage yeah. where I need your help. That's the benefits of collaboration are just more impact, like a better project, a better result. Definitely. And I've had people tell me that one of the reasons why they're wary of bringing especially business stakeholders into the journey early on is because they are afraid or worried about the amount of demand that they will get for their work if they start connecting too early. Do you share that view? What would you say to people that feel like that? Yeah. One of the offerings that we have is a prioritization tool. What I see is that, and this happened with a company that I was with, actually, I went into the company and there were 44 projects in the queue and we only had six people in the department. There should never be 44 projects in a queue like that. Like that, that's crazy. So we didn't have, our method of prioritization was what is the title of the person asking for this? Yeah. (laughs) You know, we should have been asking other questions like how well does this align with strategy? Mm -hmm. Is the data even available? Are they going to be able to operationalize this? Is this something that is scalable? Does this fall in alignment with our strategy as a data science team? What kind of impact is it going to have? And that's what I find is that sometimes companies, they don't quite know when to say not now and when to say yes and when to say I'm going to go do this thing as a proactive. Like a lot of data science functions are not figuring out that they're supposed to be consultative partners, not just order takers. And so they have to start thinking about how to proactively go after certain types of building of data science results or, or analytics engines or things like that without someone asking them to. I see their point, but as long as the, that's like saying, I don't want to spend a dollar to get $10 back because there's too many people asking me to spend a dollar. Like if you can get $10 back, like do it. Yeah. It's just a balance. No, it's a balance. Correct. It is a hard, it's a hard balance. I'm not trying to underplay it, but it's, it's definitely a tough one. No, but you hit the nail on the head. Communication and prioritization is what's needed there. Thank you. I wanted to get your views on diversity on, in data science. Obviously, I want to hear your views on gender diversity and how that's played out in your career and what we can do to improve that and then diversity more and more in a more general sense. So that's an interesting question. And I always sort of like, I'm a little perplexed when people ask me this question all the time. I guess it's because I'm a woman that people always ask me about diversity and data science. Um, But what's interesting to me is there are certain careers where I'm trying to think of one. I don't even know. Like maybe elementary school teachers. Elementary school teachers, are they typically women? They are, right? I think so. Yeah. And are, are we like fighting to have more men at the elementary school level? Like, is there some reason why we feel that that's a need? And I, I sort of, you know, why? Like, why? Why is it such a big deal? <laughs> I think as long as nobody feels unwelcomed, you know, uh-huh. it's when they feel unwelcomed, then it's a problem. I can tell you that Maybe with one person, I felt unwelcome, but I've been around a lot of people in my career Mm. and I don't 
generally feel unwelcomed. Then again, I'm sort of a data scientist, so I kind of don't care if, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't take it too, you know, like, oh, I don't, I'm not included in the reindeer games. If you really like your field and you really like your subjects, you kind of just go for it. Anyway, so I sort of draw the analogy of, are we pushing? Is there some big movement for like men at the elementary school level? I want a kindergarten teacher that's a man. Like, I don't know why we have to have, but as long as women feel that they are welcome, then I think it's good. When they start feeling that they're not welcome, then I think it's time to do something about that. And maybe that's where we are, but I personally haven't experienced that myself. I think it's a very, at least in the Atlanta area, I think that the analytics and data science community in Atlanta is a very warm, maybe it's a Southern hospitality thing, but um, a relatively welcoming, warm, embracing kind of field. And personally, I'm just glad that there are other people in it now because in 91, people didn't know what decision sciences was. Yeah. Some people were like asking me to come look at their computer because they, they didn't understand what I did. So <laughs> I'm just happy to have like other people that, are, that get it. Diversity in general... Some of the things I like about diversity in general in data science, when I think about diversity, I don't think about more static conditions like gender and socioeconomics and stuff like that. I actually think about diversity of thought. To me, it's about like how you think and how you process things. That is fantastic diversity because if you had the same kind of processing of your brain and you see things in a certain way and you get like 10 clones and they're all going to see a business problem the same way and they're all going to try to think like, here's how I want to frame it and here's the type of technique then that becomes somewhat problematic because then you've just got one person that's an expanded workforce. Um, what I found in my classes, which I thought was super interesting, Felipe, is I would show them real live examples of crummy business statements that I'd gotten from previous clients. And it would yep. say like, you know, here's what we're looking for you to do for us for data science. And it was this terrible statements. And so I would show it to the class. And um, we had the, I had the class sort of like in teams so they could work yep. on their projects. And one team would say, oh, I think what they're really asking for is this. And the approach I would take to solve that would be blah, 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 blah. Right. These are Georgia uh -huh. Tech students. So they're all fancy and always trying to impress the other students. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then the second group, I'm thinking, okay, how are they going to top that? And they would come up with something completely different. Like they saw the project and none of them were wrong. They were all right. Like none of them were completely off base, but it's just different approaches depending on what you saw as a problem and how you would go about solving it. So I think the diversity of thought is super important that we have those collaborative, again, I'm saying collaborative again, those collaborative environments. Maybe, and this was something I had to very much push for at tech was to have multidisciplinary teams. So we have like applied statistics and statisticians. And I would have an, I had taught an aerospace engineer, this guy who ran the lab for aerospace engineering at Georgia Tech. He was one of my students. So mechanical engineering, business students, master's science analytics, you mix them all in there. And if you get them in different teams, as long as they're multidisciplinary teams, you're going to have some really great diversity of thought. I think that's always going to lead to a better project. Amazing. One of the things that has really struck me in our conversation is how strong your communication is. You're very clear, very articulate, but also from your experiences, it's clear that you're able to have the tough conversations with stakeholders or clients or team members when it counts. Was communication something that was came natural to you? Is that something that you worked on it? How did you get so good? Well, thanks. Uh, I don't know if I agree <laughs> with any of that. And please don't talk to my first boss. <laughs> Because she will tell you that she was terrible from the beginning. No, I don't know. I think when I started realizing the value and the power, which was really in my first job, because I had to start mm. testifying to the Public Service Commission in my first job. Now I look back and I'm like, why did they let me do that? I was, yeah, way wow. too <laughs> I was really impressed <laughs> that I did that. Now I probably couldn't do it. But yeah, I had to start creating testimony for Public Service Commission and you sort of have to learn to think about the other perspectives and remember that they aren't you. Because this is one of the things I have to retrain and re like sort of pivot my master's. So I'm not communicating this very well, am I? But the master science analytics students, they're in a cohort and they're all together and they're always hanging out together and they go through this journey. And it's like they're stuck at the hips for months and months and months. And then they get out and they're like, oh my God, I forgot. Like nobody else knows this stuff. I think we have to remember that the way we see the world I count tiles on ceilings and I constantly do in like numbers in my head or something. I mean, it's just so weird or patterns and things like that. That's not how business users and the people that are going to consume your analytic, that's not how they see the world. Mm. And I think Felipe, the moment that I realized that I care 
because I used to total transparency, hashtag transparency. I would want to just do analytics for analytics sake. Put me in a room, let me build this model and leave me alone. And I could just work on it and hack at it. And just, yeah. I wanted to, there was this one model in particular. I loved it. And um, we use these PLS models and it's great. So I really liked that. But when I lifted my head up out of my cube, right in my office and started really talking to clients and hearing their struggles and understanding why they needed what we delivered. I think that's when I became a little bit better at communicating. I'm still not nearly where I want to be, <laughs> but that's when I realized that I'm not just doing this for analytics sake. I'm not doing data science just for data science. I'm doing this because I'm trying to help Juan or I'm trying to help like Marcus. I, it's not even about the company. I want to help this individual. And for me, that was the motivator. So that was the motivator that led you to pay closer attention to the type of communication that you had and the effects that it brought and how it helped probably disseminate your knowledge and the work. How did you improve your communication? Ah, speaking. So go to meetups. If you work at a company, like if you work at Joe's Crab Shack or whether it's Joe's restaurant down the road, that's a local mom and pop. If you've done any kind of work in data science, go to a meetup and say, yeah. I did this cool work. Can I present it? I right. recently had two very green, less, I think both of them are less than five, five years of experience. I had two data scientists present at a technology association Georgia meeting, which tag, mm -hmm. tag meetings are usually VP, senior director, usually have a pretty big title. And these were two people that were, quote, just data scientists where the rubber hits mm -hmm. the road. But mm -hmm. I believed in them. And the reason I had them speak was it was a data science for good event. And these two individuals won a competition called Data for Hope, the fight against human trafficking. I could have asked someone else or someone higher, yeah. or someone at an organization or president or whatever, but I wanted, to, I wanted them. I wanted them. And not just because I wanted the audience to hear their story and walk through the journey and hear the technical side, but also because I wanted to develop them. And I knew that for both of them, they had it in them. So some of it is just speaking and trying and picking up the cues of the person that you're talking to. I actually have a harder time talking one-on-one -on -one than I do bigger. I can talk to an audience of 500 easier than I can talk to one-on-ones because wow. now I've, got, I've gotten so used to having broader conversations like through teaching yeah. classes and through speaking at meetups and speaking at conferences that one-on-one -on -one conversations to me are becoming more challenging. So now, <laughs> now I got to work on that. That's crazy. I struggle with mid-size. Oh. So one-on-one, -on -one, I love it. Big groups, if it's sort of presentation or lecture style, also love it. But if it's 12 people around a dinner table, I struggle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it's different, right? There's a different yeah. mode. It's kind of like um, the princess wave. <laughs> crowd, crowd, individual. There's no in between. There's either the crowd wave or the individual wave. There's kind of the same thing with communication. So that mid-level can be a little tricky, right, Felipe? <laughs> Especially oh. for data scientists. We have to really be deliberate. Like we have to put value on it. So I find that my students would always, like they would present and they would say, as you can see, okay, First of all, no, they can't see. They don't see yeah. it. They don't, you're, yeah. you're seeing it. You're like, oh, and I instantly can tell what's going on. <laughs> they don't see it. Don't say as you can see. Don't no. say things like obviously. So I think some of it just takes practice and putting some effort into it and actually realizing that if you don't get this part right, all your efforts are gone. And I did not yeah. want all my efforts to be gone. And mm -hmm. I wanted to make, I wanted that person to be happy with what I did and to be able to use it. Amazing. Uh I wanted to ask you, what are your thoughts or maybe uh, advice for people who are just starting out in the space? People that are wanting, you know, eager to come in, maybe fresh out of college. What do you say to people like that? Oh, gosh, so many things. Yes. <laughs> I have a, a handful of mentees that I try to spend time with. And um, yes, I have favorites. There are some that are my favorites. Yeah. But I have a handful of mentees and they ask me, they ask me all kinds of questions because they're newly coming out and they've only been in the field for a couple of years. And there's a handful of things that come up consistently. Mm. So here's some of them. One, I wanted to do a bunch of complicated stuff and this is not as complex of problems that I wanted. So I would say to those kinds of things, you have to be somewhat patient and you, you can't wait for them, for them to hand you something complex. You in some ways have to be that movement, right? You have to be a part of that change. Don't just wait for that to the company to get perfect and then pull you mm -hmm. into it. You have to be part of that. So 
do what your part to move the company in the way that you want to move it. And if that's more complex problems, if that's understanding data science more, if that's working with the IT groups, do what you can to move things in the way that you want to move them. Secondly is I find that a lot of relatively new data scientists super, super, super ignore problem framing. They completely ignore it sometimes. It's a shame. There's a phrase that pays. This is how you know that they're ignoring the problem framing. Let me just look at the data. If you say, let me just look at the data, (laughs) that means you haven't, you haven't even thought about what data is needed. Like in order to understand what data is needed, you really have to frame the business problem. I mean, really hash it out, like talk about it ad nauseum. And when you get to that point, then you might have a better idea of what data is even needed. Mm. So I would say number two thing is to definitely not ignore the problem framing. So be a part of the change. Don't ignore problem framing. Number three, and it's something you just talked about, Felipe, which is you got to focus on the last mile. And that last mile You can't just say, here's the model, here's the solution. You got to say, like, here's how it makes sense and what you do about it. Like, here's how you implement it and here's what it can do to your business. And that's not enough. You have to say it in a way that they understand. So that's a third thing is that be a part of the change, focus on problem framing and know how to get that last mile, like that final consumption. You have to know what to say and how to say it to the business leaders, not just like, here's our model, here's our result. So that consumption. And then the last, by no means the last, but the last of what I'm going to give you today. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But the last piece that I have to tell relatively new data scientists is companies are interesting organizations and you have got (laughs) to learn to navigate. And this is part of that collaboration. If you have a great boss, great. Give yourself a pat on the back. You're lucky, right? There's a taxonomy of bosses. I won't even go into it right now. But if you have a great boss that knows how to really push data science and knows how to navigate the system for you, and you got that kind of cover, fantastic. Mm -hmm. All you got to do is navigate with your boss. But most of the time, you have to figure out the right way to navigate within an organization because we tend to think it's data. Of course, they're going to listen. Like they're not necessarily going to listen. So you have to think about the relationships, what to build, how to build them, who to talk to, all that kind of stuff before you can just jump right in and do some cool, complex project. Amazing. That is fantastic. Oh, this has been so much fun. I am going to be respectful of your time. Oh, wow. It's already time? Holy cow. I know. How did that happen? How did that happen? (laughs) Felipe, this is not right. (laughs) Oh, Beverly, this has been so, so much fun. If I can squeeze in one last question, maybe a piece of advice that you would like to leave the listeners with, uh, something that can help them in their careers. Yeah, that's a tough one. I'll give you, okay, so I'm going to do one. I can only pick one. I'm going to pick one thing. Please be curious. Please be curious. In some ways that what I'm asking you to do is really get into it. So whatever it is that you're into, be curious about it. There are so many data science leaders that I hear say, it's like my data science team just wants me to tell them what to do. They're waiting for me to give them specific directions. If you're curious and you can tap into your own curiosity about the data, about the problem you're solving, about the business that you're trying to improve, if you keep that natural curiosity, you're constantly like wondering how to make things better and improve on things, then I feel like not only are you going to be more successful in your career, but you're going to enjoy it so much more. Don't forget about that curiosity. Feel free to be curious about the data. I love it. Amazing note to end on. Beverly, thank you so much for sharing your journey, your insights. It's been an absolute blast. Thank you so much for all the work that you do. Thank you. Thank you. I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommend it for people wanting to get ahead. With the program, you can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. 
If you liked this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.